film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. Yeah. I'm Stephen Cairns, ICA curator of artists, film and moving image. This podcast captures a discussion that accompanied Olivia Plender's screening of Hold Hold Fire with Plender and academics Jana Graham and Kirsten Lloyd on 15th of October 2022. Plender's film Hold Hold Fire was commissioned by the ICA in 2019 and is inspired by her ongoing research into the East London Federation of Suffragettes. It was produced after an extensive series of workshops with women's groups across London exploring the women's suffragette movement from a contemporary feminist perspective. Hold Old Fire was shot in the ICA theatre during one of those workshops, this time a self-defence class, which took place just before the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. In 2021, during the pandemic, the film installation was shown as part of the Sao Paulo Biennial. Now, in 2022... This screening and discussion premiered the film in its two-screen installation in London, with many of the workshop participants attending. Enjoy the recording. It's so special to see that film in the space that it was made in, so thanks so much for sharing that with us. And also I think there might be some people who were involved in the film here today, so I'm really hoping that we can hear from you later on as well. So my involvement with um, your work, Olivia, started... Um, just before the pandemic hit the UK in March 2019, we invited you to Glasgow to, um, to think about a potential proposal for an exhibition project we were going to be hosting at Glasgow Women's Library um, called Life Support, Forms of Care in Art and Activism. And at that point, we didn't really, although we knew that something was on the horizon, we didn't really understand how prescient the title of the exhibition would actually prove to be in just a few weeks' time. It was called Life Support. And um, the project, I would say, that you developed for us um, at Glasgow Women's Library really formed the beating, sort of living heart of that exhibition, I would say. And I've noticed that that's a sort of common um, thread that runs through your work. Whenever I've seen your work in group exhibitions or biennials, it does tend to offer this really special space that sort of tends to be the sort of living heart of, of a project, of a wider project. And I think that's because a lot of your work tends to offer sort of space for different modes of participation and different modes of engagement and also a space for rest as well. You know, often beanbags feature, for example. Um, and I think that's just something that I wanted to sort of, I suppose, call attention to. Because at Glasgow Women's Library, um, you refurbished and reimagined the community room in that building. Um, and it was a really sort of transformative project. And it's part of an ongoing work that centres uh, feminist healthcare activism. And so that's still ongoing to this day. And the current exhibition at Maureen Paley, which I'm sure, I hope some of you have managed to see, takes the same title as the project at Glasgow Women's Library, which is Our Bodies Are Not the Problem, The Problem is Power. And it also draws on many of the same materials and themes, including writing feminist histories, uh, feminist pedagogy, um, sort of responses to violence, um, and just how to sort of negotiate that relationship between the past and the present. And these are some of the themes I hope that we're going to be circling around in our, in our discussions today. Um, but I thought it would be useful to sort of start with thinking about how you work, Olivia, you know, because we've often talked about your practice in terms of 
icebergs and constellations. Um, so maybe we can start with the latter. Um, because when I saw your exhibition yesterday um, at Maureen Paley, I was really struck by the way in which those individual works that are presented in this sort of white cube gallery space really sort of deepened and intensified my understanding of what went on and what is going on at Glasgow Women's Library. And those resonances really um, interested me. So I was wondering if we could start off with you maybe saying a few words about what we've just seen and sort of trying to position that maybe in relation to your other work. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the sort of iceberg metaphor is, you know, that we were talking about basically is sort of, you know, in a space like this, you know, you see a small fragment of this project um, but there's a whole kind of backside, you know, which goes down, you know, hopefully very deep, um, which is all the work that I've been doing over many years in uh, women's centres and community spaces. Um, and with this project, the starting point was um, a desire to uh, kind of rewrite suffragette history. So I've been very interested for many years in a group called the East London Federation of the Suffragettes, um, who I started thinking about probably about a decade ago and spent a lot of time in archives, you know, sort of digging out material. And then out of that process, I wanted to work with contemporary women who have a similar kind of practice, similar kind of activism to what those East London suffragettes were doing 100 years ago and with them think through that history, you know, because my sort of instinct was, um, you know, that you get a very, very different response, a very different take on that history than what an academic historian who perhaps doesn't necessarily have any experience of doing activism or community organising, you know, how they might read that history, you know, different things might, might come forth. Um, and suffragette history is very, very well known, particularly in the British context. You know, we're all familiar especially in 2018 when I was working on this project. You know, it was the centenary um, of 100 year, years since the first women in this country got the vote. Um, but there's a sort of particular version of that story that's told, you know, which usually excludes working-class women, uh, you know, excludes women of colour, um, also sort of um, removes a lot of the kind of queer content of that movement, you know, which is, I've done other projects about that. Um, you know, so you end up with this sort of image of suffragettes as, as these sort of, you know, as in the Mary Poppins film, these sort of upper-class ladies wearing hats, you know, who smash windows with toffee hammers. Um, and these London suffragettes are something else, you know. So my interest is that um, they uh, kind of, you know, they had a much bigger vision for social change, much bigger vision for society. Um, and they were running, you know, kind of, in a way, in East London, something which was a kind of prototype for the welfare state. And they were socialist feminists and eventually evolved into being the first communist party in the UK, you know. So they were, they were doing all kinds of community organising, working with um, issues around women's healthcare. You know, they were providing free um, healthcare for women and children. Uh, they ran a cost-priced restaurant dealing with food, in, you know, food insecurity, you know, which now obviously is a huge topic with the rise in food poverty and food banks. Um, you know, they also uh, were dealing with talking about working conditions, housing conditions. Um, so then this project, I approached groups who worked with those topics and I ended up um, working with Crossroads Women's Centre in Kentish Town and then a housing activist group called Focus East 15 um, in East London um, all of who have some relation to that history. You know, they've got an interest already in, in 
that story, and particularly in Sylvia Pankhurst, who was one of the founders of the East London Suffragettes. Um, and then I worked with them for a few years. So I was together with a theatre director called Yael Sharvit, who unfortunately can't be here today, and a group of, uh, small group of actors. And we, um, as a kind of tool for approaching this history, we used a play that was written by Sylvia Pankhurst around 1913 called Liberty or Death. And I'd found this in the archives of the Women's Library in London. Um, and as far as I knew at the time, it had never been performed, you know, and it's certainly never been published, never been out of the archive. You know, and for me, as someone who's you know, been looking at Sylvia Pankhurst for, for many, many years, you know, I didn't know that she'd written plays. You know, so this, this was interesting. So it became a kind of tool for looking at that history together. And we would sort of read the play, workshop the play, perform the play, rewrite the play together. Um, and it sort of opened up all these conversations about similarities and differences between what was going on 100 years ago and what was going on now. And this very, very strong theme of this you know, kind of sense of a return of very 19th century conditions in contemporary Britain. Um, and then this work, um, you know, many different things came out of this process, as well as the process itself, you know, being rich in, it, in itself. Um, but this work was based on, there's, there's one um, scene in the play where there's a group called the People's Army who were part of the East London Federation of Suffragettes. And I found one photo of them that exists in the archives, and they were a self-defense group. Um, and... Uh, basically, um, uh, the East London suffragettes would get together to do military training in Victoria Park in Bethnal Green. And the reason for this was that because of police violence, you know, because they were mostly working class women, you know, they were amongst the most vulnerable in the suffragette movement. They were at the sharp end of all the sort of police violence. Every time they had a protest, you know, kind of the police would come down on them like a ton of bricks. And they ended up setting up this self-defense um, kind of group, you know, and this image, I became very fascinated by this image, you know, so it's, you know, kind of, um, as you can imagine from the video, you know, an image of, of women holding guns, but, you know, in their, you know, Edwardian costumes, it's so sort of incongruous and strange as an image, and I wanted to sort of think about that and create a kind of history painting, you know, so with this video, I sort of think of particularly that half of the video as a kind of moving history painting. You know, it's sort of a, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, as we all know, you know, kind of if you go to the National Gallery, you look at these kind of, his, you know, history paintings of battle scenes, you know, it's very masculine, it's a very masculine history. And this is kind of a world upside down. You know, what would a history painting, you know, look like of, of this group, you know? Um, and then populating it with contemporary women. And then the sort of next step was, was kind of thinking about how to, um, you know, explore this sort of image of violence in a more complex way and how to build reciprocity into the process so that everybody, you know, it wasn't just me asking people to give up their time to participate, but also kind of, you know, how could the participants get something out of this process, you know. So then I set up um, a whole day of self-defence training, as you saw, you know, and then you get this sort of other image, um, other ways of exploring, you know, kind of, those sort of practices, those kind of self-defense practices. That's so interesting, thank you. I think um, there's lots in there that I want to come back to, but first of all, I suppose it's just going back to that notion of um, icebergs, I suppose. Um, because 
when I look at all these different components of your work, as I've seen over the last, over the last few days and experience back in Glasgow, I, sort of, I suppose I've started to sort of see them as sort of individual components of a broader body, but in a much closer way than you would get in a normal, you know, in a sort of conventional artistic practice. And thinking about these individual components as kind of social documents, social documents of what it means to live and what lived experience is like if we think about the infrastructures of um, living under capitalism um, in different moments in time, actually. So this idea of having these different components that speak to each other, resonate with each other, and reinforce each other. Um, and, yeah, it just uh, the thing that also sort of struck me about the relationship to each other is the way in which the infrastructures that you're dealing with um, are usually sort of dealt with in isolation, I think, um, whether that be housing, healthcare, immigration controls, things like this. But you're encouraging us through the sort of juxtaposition of all these different works to think across and cross-reference between all of these different um, structures, I suppose, that we live within. Um, yeah, I mean, very much so, yeah. yeah. And I mean, part of that is sort of um, a conversation around, you know, the violence that these structures yeah. cause, in, you know, violence in a more, in a more sort of... Um, granular sense you know so you know as we've talked about many times uh, you know kind of if you have poor housing conditions or you have bad working conditions or you have you know kind of precarity you know because of your immigration status you know that causes mental health problems that causes you know physical health problems you know many of the women um, that I've met in women's centers you know have high blood pressure have various different you know kind of health problems caused by stress you know all, all of these issues you know kind of connect yeah, no, absolutely. And then with the other f form of connection that we've just been talking about there, how your, the participatory work, if you can call it that, um, sort of links in with the more sort of two-dimensional or, or works that are presented in gallery settings and things like that. And we've talked about icebergs, and you've really interestingly recently spoken about, well, it depends from which vantage point you're viewing it from, which aspects are hidden to the other side, if you like. And I wondered if you could maybe expand on that also. Yeah, so... Um I think, you know, with a project like this, it circulates in different kinds of spaces. You know, so here we are at the ICA. You know, this is one kind of space. Um, and then, you know, there's also the work I do in community spaces, which is a different kind of space. Um, and for me, you know, kind of these, these spaces do different things. And there's different things I'm trying to sort of insert into the logic of those spaces. And also, in a way, um, you know, different things I'm trying to learn. So... You know, with um, this dis very strong desire I have to, you know, think about history and kind of, in a sense, you know, rewrite history from a feminist perspective. You know, museums are the places where history, the sort of mainstream version of history gets written. You know, if you want to sort of insert, a com you know, a, a different um, read on suffragette history, you know, kind of museums are, you know, a powerful vehicle to do that, you know, to sort of make a work that, that sort of is inserted into that distribution system. Um, and then, of course, you know, community space is something else, you know. So when I'm, when I'm um, spending time in community spaces, um, I often think that, you know, there's a dynamic where museums and art institutions often think about um, themselves as educational, you know, and there's an idea that knowledge flows in some kind of top-down way, you know, so, so an artist doing socially engaged work comes to bring knowledge to the people, you know, bring culture to the people. But the reality is, you know, I find the other way around. You know, you go into those spaces and, you know, they're very complex environments. There's a lot of really, um, 
like fantastic, um, incredible sort of, um, you know, kinds of knowledge. You know, pe people with knowledge of community organising, people with, um, you know, kind of really sort of deep embodied knowledge of sort of, you know, how to, you know, how to sort of create a caring environment. You know, how to create an inclusive environment. Um, you know, and a lot of things that our institutions don't tend to be very good at. Um, so, you know, kind of, in a way, sort of, I'm, I'm interested in kind of thinking about, um, you know, rethinking who's learning what from whom. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to see this work in the National Gallery, actually, in, in one of those rooms, you know, I think that'd be absolutely fantastic. But sticking with this idea of feminist history and writing feminist histories, um, I've recently been, I've recently started reading a book by Catherine Grant um, called A Time of One's Own. And, and in that, she asks why so many contemporary artists are looking back to engage with the histories of feminism. Mm -hmm. And she has a sort of idea about um, this, uh, this notion of embodied quotation that I think speaks really well um, to this project in particular, Hold, Hold Fire, where it's this idea that you embody and you quote from the past in order to use that as a sort of learning process, if you like. But the book as a whole kind of draws upon a previous work which deals with um, the fan and the figure of the fan and fandom as a way of trying to understand how um, contemporary artists deal with, say, the suffragettes or, or things like that. And I just wanted to t sort of, I suppose, test that idea a little bit in this context to think about, you know, um, is that, how persuaded are you by that sort of idea in relation to your own work? Or are there other ways that we should be thinking about uh, the negotiation of the past and the present, and I mean both in art and in terms of organising, and maybe I could bring you in here, Jana, first off, before we come back to you, mm -hmm. just to think about that idea of how we, how we use the past and the present, I suppose. Sure, thank you, um, and it's great to be here and to engage with Olivia's uh, work in public, because we've kind of had lots of conversations behind the scenes in the development of this project. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I think that question of, um, you know, artists engaged in embodied quoting kind of begs the question of um, is the artist someone who sits as separate from the feminist movement or society more generally and I, I know from Olivia's practice that um, I'm not sure if I'd position you in as a fan you know of this you know yes a fan but when we look to history we often look to history from the conjunctures of the present the problems we find ourselves in and I think that question, you know, why you were drawn to the question of violence and self-defense, et cetera, in a moment um, of post-austerity, Britain isn't by, by accident. It's not, and it's not only about looking back to, to have heroes, but actually looking back for, for strategies. And I sort of think, um, you know, right now within social movements and sort of conversations around how we engage with the past, this idea um, that a lot of social movements have used in, in, um, in the Americas and also people like Stuart Hall have used is the idea of conjunctural analysis, which is where we take a kind of problem of the present and we try and map its trajectory historically. We try and understand the particularity and the urgency of a moment of the present. And, and I see this project in some ways as a kind of distributed conjunctural analysis of saying this is what we're facing in East London in this particular moment and, and you yourself as a feminist participating in feminist movements and spaces sort of saying what can we make use of and I think the artistic context is a really helpful one to resource those kinds of historical projects and encounters but I'm not sure if we can place 
and this is always the case with feminist pedagogy and feminist projects and feminist art projects, that they just don't sit in the art, in the art world comfortably, usually. They, they are in, in an expansive social um, interrogation, you know, because women's lives <laughs> not exist only in art, and they never do. They exceed um, in the violences we experience are outside. So it's a kind of like a mechanism, as I see it in the work, um, is to sort of use an art project as a way to kind of go back and learn. Um, and also for the groups that you're working with, who, you know, had, you know, if you had gone to them and said, oh, I'd want to do an art project with you, probably might have not seen too much use value in that. But actually the groups saw some use value in returning to a group of women 100 years ago who were trying to do precisely what they're trying to do as a mode of analysis of reflecting back and forward on, um, and that's the other thing about conjunctural analysis, is that it's not only about an analysis that begins the present and looks back, but it's an analysis that begins in the present to look back, to find the, the point in which we could articulate an action in the future. And I think when you listen to the women engaging with that um, piece of um, the liberty or death theater piece, you hear that they're looking for that, right? They're looking for the, the ways that women in that moment negotiated the cracks and found ways to, to act upon their conditions. And, um, and I think that's the real kind of value in this project is to produce that kind of an analysis with, um, among others, yeah. Yeah, just to, is that right, just to, is that right Olivia? Sounds <laughs> Do you right. think this is Thank right? you, Jenna. <laughs> um, but yeah, just to, just to kind of pick up on that, um, the part that I respond to very much from mm. what you said is, is my relation to history it's definitely not heroic, you know, mm -hmm. kind of um, all of these historical movements have had problems, mm -hmm. you know, like the suffragette movement was not perfect. Mm -hmm. um, the East London Federation of Suffragettes, for me, are one of the more appealing groups within the suffragette movement um, because they had an anti-racist politics, you know, because they had um, a, you know, kind of um, class politics, you know, whereas the wider suffragette movement was, was, um, was very classist, you know. Um, but, you know, still not perfect. So, it, as Jana said, it's very much about looking for strategies mm -hmm. um, and wanting to have a conversation about the past where all that complexity is present. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's what goes missing in mainstream versions of history. You know, you get this kind of simplification when history is used, you know, for example, for nationalist causes you know, you get this flattening and this simplification of what mm -hmm. actually happened at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you bring back all that granular detail, you know, so with this history, you know, that's when people start to recognise themselves in it and start to sort of see structures and patterns, you know. So there's, there's a sort of pattern of experience that, you know, the women, the contemporary women I was working with, you know, recognise themselves in, in this story, recognise themselves in this play, um, and just in terms of strategies, um, just to say something about the, the half of the film that was on this side, um, you know, kind of we were using specific strategies so, and techniques. So um, the self-defense method is something called Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which was developed in the early 20th century as a way for um, someone who has kind of uh, a, a weaker person to overcome a stronger person. You know, so, and that became very useful for feminist movements, you know, because if you don't have a lot of kind of muscle, you know, kind of muscle mass, you know, sort of body strength, you can still, you know, kind of overcome an opponent who's much stronger and bigger than you. Um, you know, so that's a technique that's been used a lot, you know, was used by the suffragettes originally, and then it's been used a lot by, you know, different, 
feminist movements, you know, kind of in, in relation to self-defense. And then you've also got um, the sort of uh, second section where, you know, the women become a kind of mass, you know, this sort of immovable mass holding onto each other. Um, that's a non-violent strategy that was used at Greenham Common. Mm -hmm. And it was developed for when the police would charge the women. And because Greenham Common, um, which, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it was, it was this sort of, um, you know, protest that went on for, you know, 20 years, continuous protest at the Greenham Common missile base where um, the American military was, was storing missiles, you know, on British soil. And there was, you know, kind of the women's... It was a women-only camp. And, you know, it was populated continuously for 20 years. Um, they occupied the space outside the camp and disrupted, you know, the missiles coming in and out, disrupted the activity of the military. You know, and it was a constant conflict, you know, with the police, you know, constantly um, coming down and sort of, you know, attacking the camp, moving the camp on, you know, removing their tents and so on. And some of the women who participated, you know, were at Greenham back in the 80s. Um, so also came with all that kind of, you know, those memories, you know, kind of body memories of what it was like to be in that situation. And it was also used at the time um, during the miners' strike. So there's a group called uh, Women Against Pit Closures who were very active during the miners' strike. And they were in dialogue with the Greenham women, you know, and some of them overlapped. Um, and they also used that technique, you know, as a non-violent strategy for when the police charged them. Um, you know, and then, of course, you have this, you know, which is a very different kind of strategy, this very formal military training, um, you know, which is also, I should say, it's also about symbolic, a symbolic image of violence. You know, so it's not the, the main purpose, well, one of the main purposes of the People's Army that was part of the East London Federation of Suffragettes was to create that propaganda image. So the photograph that I originally found in the archive um, and, you know, there's a lot of writing around what that image meant by Sylvia Pankhurst, you know, who, was, as I said, was part of the group. And she talks about how, you know, the People's Army, they never fired their guns. They never actually, you know, kind of, you know, um, you know took that step. But the whole sort of agenda was to create this symbolic image um, so that the police were afraid of them, to create that kind of fear of retaliation you know, but in the hope that they would never have to fire the guns. Um, you know, so it's, it's, that's a strategy in itself, you know, that's, that's a sort of strategy for dealing with violence in itself. And maybe thinking, sorry, just to jump in, um, just, just thinking about this idea of embodied quotation, which I think is really useful. I was just trying to think about that moment that you had women in, in re-inhabit a feeling of conflict because if you think of the moment that this film was made and sort of the, the sort of moment of post-austerity we're in a situation where um, the conditions of living were becoming more and more extreme and the experience of violence women were facing in their lives were more and more extreme but our imaginary was very much um, based in a kind of to a large extent in a kind of liberal framework and a neoliberal fr framework that was kind of um, neutralizing or attempting to neutralize feelings of conflict. You know, that, that at that moment it was like we're in a situation that can hold all of this conflict um, without us having to take kind of fundamental risks to fight it. You know, and I think that we were at a kind of impasse um, in terms of um, the feeling. How, how could we actually feel conflict? such that we might act upon it, you know? And I don't even know if we've actually 
answered that yet, but we were in a moment, certainly in certain sectors, I remember people talking about the, um, the kind of shift from the extreme centre, from this idea that we could hold, neoliberalism could hold endless amounts of kind of conflict without them articulating themselves on the street or articulating themselves in an everyday way as a kind of um, fight back and that, that to ask women to actually re-inhabit a moment in which conflict was palpably felt in the body um, and the articulation of a kind of powerful um, physical relation to conflict was, was an important one and I think something you were provoking and it would be interesting to hear from the, the women who took part whether that was you know what it felt like to um, to sort of be in that um, that holding a, a weapon you know sort of thinking about self-defense thinking about the body in conflict um, in that in that kind of way. I don't know if there's anyone here that would like to speak to that at the moment or we can come to you at the end if you prefer. I think uh, ironically, well, I don't know if it's ironically, hello, um, my name is Mai. Um, hello. <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, I think one of the strongest points in the workshop, and actually I was very moved to see it now on the screen, um, was how we were all sitting together. And I, I, I think it was a very memorable workshop. Like I, I found myself throughout the years still like reflecting back on that. Um, and um, like I was moved now, I was moved then. And the, the sensation of being in a room with so many women united and all like we were all in some way connected physically and um, sharing like one cause um, it's like um, fuels you with so much uh, empowerment um, so I want to thank you also thank you. for that experience um, yeah uh, I think for me that was the most uh, the strongest uh, point. I think we can feel that as viewers as well. I mean, I certainly felt that while watching the film too, or at least get a taste of it. So thank you for sharing yeah. your thoughts. You're welcome. Um, yeah, so I wondered if we could just return briefly to this question of writing feminist history, because I was um, aware that, you know, in the project that you did in Glasgow, for example, that was looking to uncover um, an alternative history of healthcare. I suppose, global history of healthcare as well. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that, that sort of got beyond the kind of sanitised or mainstream version of history again. So this is a sort of common thread, I think, that runs through your work. And I was wondering to what extent you see your work itself as actually engaging in a form of feminist history writing. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that is yeah. one of the things I'm doing very strongly. Um, and... You know, in doing that, I wanted to sort of then think about um, how feminist history might, writing might be different, a different kind of process than, mm. you know, normal history writing, you know, where, where you have, you know, an academic who goes to the archives, you know, and then um, kind of, you know, writes a sort of singular, singularly authored um, version of that history. And then that was, that was sort of the reason to involve a group of women. You know, it sort of felt like it had to be a collective process. Mm. Um, and so there's, a, there's also, with this project, a book um, that came out of it where, you know, it, it's very sort of polyphonic. Like, you have a lot of the different voices of, you know, of the different women who are involved in the workshops, um, you know, with their reflections. And 
Um, it, the book itself is sort of organized as a kind of workbook, you know, so it's a tool that people can use, you know. So I published the play again. I published, um, you know, the sort of version of the play that was, you know, in the end what we kind of rewrote, you know, rewrote it as. And then a lot of the sort of words of the women, you know, which, which are also sort of, um, you know, tools for discussion. So it's, you know, it's a kind of book that people can then pick up again and set up their own workshop, you know, and kind of dig back into the topic, you know. So the idea is always to kind of keep it live, you know, that it doesn't just go to the library shelf, you know, or to the back into the archive, you know, but it's, it's a live process that can keep on going. And history being something that you have to constantly renegotiate, you know. Um, and sort of destroy and remake, you know, in a way that knowledge is something you destroy and remake constantly. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. Maybe that can take us on then to feminist education strategies and feminist pedagogy, and the sort of what those approaches sort of might look like beyond. I mean, Jan and I are closely involved with the sort of higher education sector, if you like, and we're thinking about, you know, what feminist education strategies mean in that context, but you're working beyond that context. You're not working within their usual sort of structures, if you like, of what we normally understand as education. Um, but maybe we could come to you first, Jana, to think about... I know that you've got lots of experience in working with collectives and community groups. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your understanding of the role of radical or critical pedagogy in those circumstances before maybe we come to uh, feminist strategies in particular, but sort of mm -hmm. thinking about radical education and radical pedagogy um, in relation to organising and um, social movements. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, this question is, is really interesting because um, social movements often don't write their pedagogical histories, right? Like, they live them. And um, they, we might see in the record, we see the speeches uh, made by Martin Luther King, but we don't necessarily until very recently know of the organizing practices of Ella Baker and Septima Clark, who were the kind of on the ground organizers making freedom schools, creating, you know, the sort of the brass tacks and the pedagogical context of the civil rights movement. Um, same with, you know, the 1968 generation in in France and the occupations of the Sorbonne, we don't, we don't, unless you're someone like me who really loves to look at that kind of history, we don't necessarily go back and say, okay, how did they, why did they use pamphlets? Well, they were involved in secondary education programs where um, printing presses were put in the school as a radical pedagogical strategy. You know, this, the history of education within social movements, so, you know, again, we see the iceberg, you know, we see, we see the moment that the, um, of eruption, and we think that social movements, by virtue of that, have happen in eruption rather than happen through long-term organizing and pedagogical processes that erupt and fall and continue, you know? And that is really damaging to our organizing strategies because we're all just waiting for that moment when something's going to change and we're all going to just get swept up and, there are, you know, and, and the world changes and then we get disappointed when it doesn't because we don't understand that there's a huge history of, of learning, of work, that's mostly done by women and therefore excluded from the record. So, so I think there's a there's a whole thing around, um, but then how are those knowledges actually spread? You know, and how how do we learn? Um, and some of that, you know, there's there are there is a sort of small traces, and one of the things that 
that um, myself and, and other people um, who are into this stuff do is just like we gather workbooks like the one Olivia's produced, like workbooks from the 70s of the Sandinistas and the workbooks of the um, you know, 68 generation, you know, who taught, try and learn who the teachers were and try and really dissect and understand the, the kind of um, the specificity and granularity of those education practices and try and then bring them into our movements, you know. Um, and I think that that, but there's another way that those transmit, which is just really through the kinds of groups you're talking about and that you're talking to. And it is very, um, you know, a lot of the groups I'm working with now where we're trying to look at um, women's organizing practices in urban settings, in particular um, women of color's practices, which are just not, you know, there's not a record of them. Um, they, they're just always happening and they're literally like a shadow um, there's a kind of shadow uh, community sector that's just completely unrecognized and unacknowledged and is to try and then sort of figure out how do we excavate those histories and how do we bring them into the present. And then there's a question like how do you write those histories? Do you write them as a historian who sort of makes a book and says this is how it happened or do you write them in the conditions of the present and you sort of sort of think about how the technologies of organizing are happening now, tracing them back, trying to understand where they come from. So I think that, you know, um, but again, you know, like try, there is this question of, of the tip of the iceberg, the visibility question, right? Like they are important to become visible at a certain, at a certain uh, moment and, and how they become visible is important, but they, they need to because, um, you know, you just have generations, particularly in our current moment um, and, and for the last 20 years where the new is really like ever, ever desired, you know, that those kind of long trails of history get broken and there isn't a feeling of continuity. There's a feeling of constantly reinventing or um, not having a history, you know, being without a history. And when you work with young activists, you know, they, they'll say, well, they'll be completely and utterly shocked that someone did something <laughs> very similar 20 years ago. So there is a kind of need for um, a visibility and a rec recognition. But the, the question is, does that visibility become a fetish? Does it become the object of production for someone, you know, researcher uh, who then builds a career off the back of it? Or do they become, you know, um, points of visibility that are recirculating and that are actually building power in contemporary movements? Um, yeah. I think there's also, just to add something as well, I think another dynamic that I'm very interested in um, is, you know, because within, um, you know, these kind of methods we're describing that exist within a lot of community spaces um, and feminist groups, um, you know, one of the sort of important things that goes on is care, you know, and care is something that traditionally has been associated with women, and we've, you know, historically always been told that that is somehow natural, you know, in very heavy quotation marks. Um, but my sort of, um, you know, kind of agenda is that, you know, care is a set of techniques. Um, you know, of course, you know, you get love and everything else, you know, kind of potentially behind that. But actually there are methods. Um, we should name them. It's a very complex knowledge to know how to care, you know, the sort of methods involved in care. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and when you go into those kind of settings, you see all these sort of very complicated sort of methods going on. So, um, you know, for example, um, you know, when I was running these workshops in the women's spaces, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, for example, someone would disclose something very traumatic or very difficult um, you know, that would happen quite often, you know, because we're talking about difficult topics. 
And then you'd sort of see how the group had this kind of knowledge of, you know, group dynamics and how to sort of manage that disclosure, you know, make that person feel okay about having disclosed that thing, sort of simulate that information, that, that sort of story that might be quite difficult. Um, you know, there was this sort of way that the groups I could see, you know, really knew how to sort of, you know, deal with emotions, you know, deal with, um, you know, all these sort of difficult feelings, deal with difficult group dynamics, you know, which is not easy stuff to do, you know. I mean, you know, for example, I teach a lot, and, you know, all three of us who are sitting here, you know, we all teach a lot. And when you start teaching, you, know, you suddenly have to take on those responsibilities, managing the group dynamics, um, you know, and it's something very, very difficult to learn, you know. So for me, going into these environments, you're like, oh, the, you know, these people really know how to do mm-hmm. this stuff. And this is not natural, you know, this is stuff they've learned by being in these environments. But no one's naming these techniques as a knowledge, you know, no one's sort of writing a sort of list of what these techniques are, you know, unless you get these sort of workbooks that come out of, um, you know, for example, the women's liberation movement in the 1970s was pretty good at naming a lot of their techniques, you know, and there were quite concrete forms like, you know, um, the consciousness raising group, you know, where you would get a protocol, you know, and that's been written about a lot. Um, You know, so certain movements, you know, have had the time and the energy and the capacity to to sort of turn those techniques into sort of, you know, methods with a name, you know, methods that you you then, you know, can publish a workbook, you know, that other people can then use. But most of the groups that I've come across just don't have the time, you know, they're too busy dealing with sort of Mm-hmm. you know, really urgent crises, situations, um, to, to be able to sit down and sort of write all that down, you know, write down everything they're actually doing and name it. So I've got a sort of agenda that I think it's very important to, um, you know, to name these things as methods in order to get away from that sort of stereotypical image as women as just being naturally caring. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we can use that then as a basis for thinking about how we might start to define feminist pedagogy, you know, is that techniques of care as being one, but how do we, um, clearly it won't be a final <laughs> definition, but how, we, how might we start talking about feminist pedagogy specifically then? I mean, I have uh, two, well, maybe multiple ways, but there's one one thing that I think is, is really important, which is um, where feminists or women bring strategies to larger social movement kind of education or radical pedagogy more generally. Because the other dynamic to talk about is that the main texts of radical pedagogy are written by men, right? Like Paulo Freire or Ivan Illich or, you know, Henry Giroux or, um, you know, John Dewey. You know, these are the big names of democratic, 20th century kind of democratic education. And they're predominantly practiced by women and written by men. And so there's a kind of question around that, around whether those pedagogies are already feminist, because most of the practitioners that they're drawing from who are practicing techniques like the pedagogy of the oppressed are women working in social movements as educators or teachers in schools. So there's, you know, there's a kind of feminist pedagogy that needs to be retrieved um, from those histories or even from the history of social movements more generally, like, you know, um, Lenin is the one that we talk about a lot when we talk about sort of the Russian Revolution, but his wife Krupskaya was the commissar of education and wrote 12 volumes on radical pedagogy, most of which bringing in questions of reproduction 
um, and care and how those technologies of care should be taught in schools equally to philosophy as well as manual labor practices. You know, there's, a, there's that kind of feminist history that's just buried within the, the traditions of radical pedagogy that we read about. And then there's the mo feminist movements, histories of pedagogy themselves, which come out of a very conscious sort of sense of being feminist. So, um, so I mean, you know, the, the dynamic between the two and the overlaps between the two, I think, are, are really interesting to think about because one's a very consciously feminist practice and the other is often sort of a buried practice <laughs> that is feminist within a, a broader kind of question of radical pedagogy. But, um, but in terms of, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's this, this constant dynamic that we were just talking about in, um, in feminist pedagogy that's explicitly coming out of movements, which is... Um, that dynamic between, um, you know, things that are practiced in the moment and things that are consciously output. Um, and I, it, that, is, that is like a, a kind of bigger question, which is just what gets told, what gets reflected on as pedagogy and what doesn't, and whether it needs to. Sometimes it, so I agree with, you know, I'm the same as you, um, Olivia, in terms of wanting to, <laughs> wanting to de, um, denaturalize um, these kinds of ideas and also understand that um, to care is not always progressive or feminist or radical, you know, that care has a colonial history, it has a violent history, and that unless we really explicitly talk about the techniques we're using, they're not necessarily radical if, if they're called care, you know, we have to really unpick them to understand if they're democratic, if they're nonviolent, if they're not replicating colonial um, dynamics, if they're not the kind of care that was practiced on the plantation that underpins the capitalist logic, which is the, you know, the violence of touch. Um, and the violence um, of an expectation of care in an incarcerated, you know, scenario. So it's like, you know, it, we have to really unpack that. And I think part of what's useful in looking at feminist pedagogy as a set of techniques or technologies of care is that we can then unpick them and we can say, this one actually is progressive. This one isn't. You know, and we don't have a kind of general idea, which, you know, of course, during the COVID moment, we, when we everyone wore badges, like Boris Johnson wore a badge that said care, you know, that made you want to be sick, made it quite, quite clear that we need to be very nuanced and specific in the way that we talk about it and the way we unpick it. So, so I think there's a real use value in that. But there's another kind of, you know, um, set of techniques and technologies that um, are written in practice, you know, and maybe they need to continue to be written in practice because they can't ever settle. So there's methodologies that we can write down, but the minute we write it as though we have to practice it in that moment, we, we start to um, create almost like a, yeah, like a fetish of it. We don't allow it to provoke um, or be provoked in the present. So we have to be a bit careful about how we bring those, you know, even workbooks. Like I've often have made a lot of these workbooks um, and protocols and things like that and being kind of obsessed with that form of like the recipe and how do you write a, pedag a radical pedagogical um, uh, process that you sort of almost always need the questioning of it built into it. Um, and I remember we did a project uh, during the 2008-2009 kind of protests that were happening around education reform in Britain. And we went back to a series of historical education kind of archives and concepts, and we would practice them together. And then we would write almost like a sidebar about all, with all the reasons why it didn't work or could. You know, and I think that kind of reflection on the, on the method is a really crucial thing to build in because um, one of the things that you, you sort of, and I'll end in a sec, but one of the things that people talk about when they read these kind of big texts of critical pedagogy 
is this feeling of disappointment in themselves they always have, which is that they read like Paolo Freire and they're supposed to go into the classroom and they're supposed to somehow um, overturn the power relation and then there's supposed to be some kind of revolutionary confrontation with the management of the university and like when that doesn't happen you just really feel like shit and like you didn't do a good job, you know what I mean? And so like somehow that commentary on the on what you do when it fails and how and what you you know how you learn from that and how you work with that is an important part of how we work with these kind of methodologies I think particularly in feminist movements because our work is really never done and it's never um, uh, it's just you know it's not going to be right until something really fundamental <laughs> happens so we have to be able to reflect on on failure not as a fetish but failure as a, a reality and as something that we learn from and, and need to keep adapting to just to, just to add something, you know, kind of on a, on a sort of um, practical note, like I was just thinking, you know, while you were speaking, I was um, reminded of with this film, you know, kind of the dynamic that I tried to set up and, you know, everyone I was working with tried to set up in the actual room, um, you know, because I really wanted to, um, you know, to practice some of these techniques that I learned in community spaces and so, you know, when we had the filming day, um, you know, one very important thing we did was we organised free childcare, you know, so that anyone with, you know, childcare responsibilities could come, um, you know. And sort of there's a lot of stuff that we try to do, you know, which really helps the atmosphere, you know. So sort of, I mean, basic stuff like, you know, organising lunch, organising childcare, um, you know, also sort of... Um, you know, I always start the day and finish the day, you know, with a sort of round, you know, checking how everyone's feeling, you know, constant conversation about where the limits are, you know, if someone's uncomfortable, you know, I certainly don't want to coerce them into doing something they're not comfortable with, you know, so these sort of constant check-ins, you know, throughout the whole experience, you know. Um, so there's, there's lots of kind of ways of sort of, um, you know, like with the project, you know, I didn't just want to make a project that looked like feminism. I wanted to make a project that was practicing and doing feminism, you know, where we were trying, you know, really trying to sort of um, create a different atmosphere in the room during the production of the work. And I should say we also had an all-female crew, you know, so everyone from, you know, the camera person, the sound person, the, um, you know, the camera assistant, you know, everybody was female, um, which actually takes a bit of doing. So, you know, kind of film crews are usually male. You know, it's a very, very masculine space. Um, so it took a bit of work to find, you know, kind of women who knew how to do those jobs, you know, who work professionally, um, you know, kind of in sound or as a, you know, director of photography and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so that was also important. Um. I'm conscious of time, so I really just want to move on to maybe what might be our sort of final section before we open it out, which is really about um, violence and self-defence. So it's a tricky one. I'm thinking about um, thinking as as you've said, Jana, really encourage you know making sure that we think very critically about concepts such as care and social reproduction and things like this, um, and keep reminding ourselves, I suppose, that feminism is first and foremost about struggle um, and resistance. Um, and I think, in other words, we have to avoid this really sort of reductive, depoliticizing sense of care, as you've said already. So I looked in the dictionary, and the definition of struggle refers to making forceful or violent efforts to get free of restraint and constriction. And in your work, Olivia, 
I think a lot of it appears to be really rooted in a strong sense of anger regarding current um, conditions and structures as well as individual and state violence perpetrated against women and other marginalised people. Um, and the sound recordings, uh, for those of you who have been to the Maureen Paley exhibition, the sound recordings of women's testimonies um, in neither Strivers nor Skyvers gives a really visceral account all of these sort of lived experiences of these violent state infrastructures and sort of racialized um, capitalism as well. So really sort of um, thinking about this sort of these different types of violence, if you like. But I think that the anger that we maybe find in this work, um, Hold Holds Fire, is um, maybe more of an undercurrent um, in your other works. So I wanted to sort of really think through um, how violence operates um, in, this, in this work, both in a dual sense, I suppose, the violence perpetrated against people and against groups, and also sort of violence um, as it connects to self-defense, to resistance, um, to feminist histories. You know, there's a, as you've pointed out, you know, there's, there's strong histories of um, feminism and, uh, and its connections with violence, and in the, in the present as well with um, Java. So maybe we could open up to you, Jana, first, if that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a, this is a tough one. Violence in relation to resistance and struggle. And yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, it's a question for our moment, right? I mean, we, you know, um, what do you do when, um, you know, when people have said they're going to um, exercise their democratic right to go on strike and 6,000 of them are threatened with a layoff? which is a violence to their livelihood, you know, which is a, an impoverishment of 6,000 workers. We're in a moment of violence right now, so we have to really think about this question seriously. And, um, but, of course, we also know, uh, and, you know, we have to think about infrastructure, you know, we, we, that we're at an impasse uh, with a, a lot of urgent kinds of questions and a very strong block on change, and these are the moments when violence does erupt, and um, in, in its various forms, and often needs to. And you know, people who are writing the the text, which is called "Why We Need to Blow Up Pipelines," is a really, you know, crucial text of the environmental mo movement right now. Which is like, what happens when um, we reach an impasse where the infrastructures that we're using are enabling and allowing a kind of flow of a, of a violent destruction of the planet, you know. So on the one hand, there's that and that whole set of questions which um, feminists have been facing in a very micro-political way, you know, how do you, how do you deal with the person who's abusing you in your house, you know, how do you deal with the state forces um, that are, are is essentially um, enacting themselves as a violence on your body, um, how, how that under, you know, women's bodies and the violences to women's bodies underpin the entire system, the logic of the system of extraction we live under, particularly in the experiences like Hortense Spiller would talk about you know, the women, the shadow families of the plantation, you know, that that, that is the, the violence that underpins capital. So, you know, we have that and we need strategies to understand we've all, we have been living in violence and that, that um, a kind of self-defense or even a violent response isn't always um, the moral 
you know, should, doesn't, shouldn't be met with a moral outrage that we think it should always. On the other hand, you have this question, and I think this is really the question that comes out of the kind of violences of the 70s movements, um, which is the question which is not a very feministly posed question because in Jean-Luc Godard's La Chinoise, where there's the kind of professor, the super paternalistic relation between the professor and the young female student, but where she's talking about bombing the university, basically. And, um, and he says, well, what... You kind of have to think about what comes next, you know, like that that act isn't going to be enough. And the one thing that's really interesting about the suffragettes, who were the first to enact infrastructural violence on the Bank of England, for example, by bombing the Bank of the Bank of England, they kind of had a longitudinal strategy. So that wasn't like a kind of eruption of violence that they didn't know what to do with, because they had a kind of long, you know, it was fit into an analysis and also an idea of, you know, maybe what came next. And I think that's a, a kind of question for us right now which is um, a moment where things could just erupt into moments of violence, but actually what we often see even with left violence or progressively oriented violence is it often kind of starts to corrode those who have participated in it and corrode the movements it was a part of and, and without that sense of trajectory uh, and where it fits, um, that you know, a, a kind of enactment or a call to an inf- violence on our current infrastructures doesn't really... It doesn't really work. So I think there's things to learn from the ways, the kind of feminist ways of thinking violence in in that particular moment of suffragette movements that is useful to today. Um, but it is it's a very difficult you know question to to answer because we're not used to talking about, especially not in cultural spaces. We're not used to talking about yeah. um, violence, you know, and and what that actually means. What would it mean to resist this moment, you know, when actually the democratic processes we're used to using are being um, you know, kind of policed in a quite significant way. Just to, just to sort of throw in, um, you know, kind of a, another viewpoint as well. Um, I mean, just to say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, with this work, you know, I, I'm sort of, um, you know, in a way I wanted to have a complex conversation about violence. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have a position on that, mm-hmm. but it was sort of putting next to each other, mm-hmm. these very, very different relations to that. And I just wanted to bring up Greenham Common again, yeah, exactly. you know, which was a completely different kind of conversation about violence. Yeah. So at Greenham Common, you know, there it was non-violent, and the idea very strongly, um, you know, was to model a version of society that was the opposite of this kind of militaristic, um, you know, the militaristic structures beyond the fence, you know, the sort of military who were on the other side of the fence and then the women's camp you know um which was on the common um you know and and that sort of become a kind of you know this sort of um uh you know modeling this very different version of what what society might be you know which is a completely different kind of approach so when i was putting this work together i was sort of deliberately putting those different mm-hmm. strategies next to each other you know to to sort of um you know kind of you know, to sort of show these very different kind of positions in relation to the topic of violence. Because we've said, as we've said, it's obviously, you know, it's a very difficult topic to talk about, to think through, but it's constantly present, you know. Um, it's always there, you know, sort of in social movements, the threat of violence or the, you know, kind of from whichever side, you know, the threat of violence from the state and the police, the, you know, the violence that people are living with, also the movements responding with violence, you know, it's, it's always somehow present, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a sense in which it then needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're, 
I suppose I was, I've been really affected by an article I read back in 2017 um, by Dilar Durek, which was talking about the situation in Rojava and talking about how you know, this commitment to pacifism and non-violence is really a very privileged, white, liberal, feminist perspective. And she's saying, actually, when you're in this you know, and you can take up arms, you do. Um, and then that's also connected, of course, though, to a much broader reorganisation of society, a different vision um, of society altogether. But, yeah, it's a very complex topic. But I think we should be aware of our, our positions in it. So thank you. Um, we've been talking for an hour. Um, so I wonder if anyone has anything that they would like to... Oh, we've got a roving mic, I think. Um, we've got someone over here, actually. We really just to hear your question. Hi, yeah. Um, it's just, uh, I guess it's a question for, for Olivia, really. Um, but I guess other people may have some input. Um, I've been interested in the history of technologies for a while, or, or the way that art uses different you know, technologies according to its point in history and the way that they become uh, redundant or surpassed by other technologies, but at the same time they then retain their idiosyncrasies so that we can go back and make a, a kind of grainy black and white photograph or a, a silent movie um, and uh, continue to explore the peculiarities of that technology, even though it's sort of been surpassed in a way. And um, one of the most peculiar technologies that I've come across to think about, and I haven't found much information on it, is the tableau vivant, and this um, tradition which, um, in uh, Goethe's uh, novel uh, Elective Affinities, you, you see a country house party that lasts a weekend, and one of the entertainments is to <laughs> create a tableau vivant, which is something that sort of makes us laugh today. It seems such a sort of perverse act and a perverse, a strange work of art. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of interested in your piece, uh, the way that there seemed to be a moment of a potential to make a tableau vivant, but it turns into a video, which is the more, if you like, commonplace te technology that artists are using today. And so I just wondered uh, if you'd researched the tableau vivant yourself, if you'd considered using it, perhaps as a sort of non-violent uh, image. Uh, what was the phrase that was used earlier on? Um, I can't remember. Uh, um, a kind of image of power. Uh, 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 a symbolic image, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a sort of non-violent symbolic image. Um, yeah, I just wanted to... Uh, Thank you. you. Um, yeah, that's a lovely question. Yeah, because Tableau Vivant was obviously... That was definitely one of the things I was thinking about when I was making this image. Because in a way, I had sort of three visual forms in my head. And as I mentioned, you know, sort of monumental history painting being one. And then I was thinking about Tableau Vivant. And then I was also thinking about studio portraiture from that time. You know, the sort of photography that existed where you would go to the... Um, you know, the photographer's studio, there would always be a painted backdrop, you know, um, you know, and these sort of stiff poses in front of the painted backdrop. And so I was, you know, was, in a way that image is something between those three forms. And I don't know that much about the history of the tableau before, you know, and I'd love to know more, but it was there kind of in the background in my head. Um, yeah, because I'm also very interested in these kind of anachronistic forms, you know, so you know, kind of in the early 20th century, you know, you also get sort of, um, you know, really fun forms like the Magic Lantern Show, you know. And then I like it when the, you often get these sort of moments where the new technology arrives 
and then all these different technologies sort of coexist together. You know, so you have the Magic Lantern show, plus you know, film. You know, exist mo- actual moving image existing. You know, plus tableau vivant. You know, and in the early twentieth century, you know, you you would get, you know, kind of stage shows that might have all of those forms at the same moment. You know, which it's somehow that sort of anachronism of that is really fascinating. Thank you. Can I say something about the tableau vivant? Just because it's um, it's something that recurs within radical pedagogy as a, or within sort of also radical art practices like Brack's idea of the jest in some ways sort of triggers the, the tableau vivant as a, this kind of symbolic image of power where one sees oneself as as other to oneself and then someone like um, Augusto Boal in the theatre of the oppressed uses the tableau vivant quite heavily as a, a sort of again a symbolic image of power that one can kind of look at outside of oneself to, to perform an analysis of how power is organized socially so I think I think it's a recurring technology as well even you know now when we have many other technologies available because of its kind of stillness you know and it allows us to kind of create almost like a composite abstraction of, you know, of everyday life such that we can look at it and respond to it and use it as a point for analysis. Boal asks us to kind of go in and change the image, you know, to change the tableau, to kind of reconfigure relations of power. But I think um, it's interesting how something that's maybe sort of more entertaining or a parlor game gets then taken up in these other um, kind of political and pedagogical strategies. Yeah. And it is a kind of idea of embodiment as well, as an embodied quotation of some kind of everyday life. It's different than taking a photograph um, of something as an intentional configuration of bodies in relation to one another that has this kind of ability to sort of shift relations as well as articulate them. Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks so much. There was so much to think about in that. And um, lots of things, Jenna, you were saying I thought were so all of you were saying, well, just something that you were saying there at the end, um, this idea of having a longitudinal view and how to avoid a process becoming corrosive. But and I thought that was so helpful in activism to think about how to introduce those methods into, 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 into the, the, those spaces. I guess there's two things that came up. One was around um, an annotational pr- pr- practice as well as a quotational one. So one where you were talking about workbooks and having a sidebar and that kind of thing. And I think often... For me, when I introduce, like when I try to write these what you called recipes um, into these spaces, they have to always be written with a view to annotation and to change and to and to be res- responsive to context rather than be fixed as a, as instructions. And I guess to think of like manifestos as an example of something speculative and utopian rather than as a set of rules it made me think about that. Um, but I wondered if you could speak a bit to Jana from your like um, your your breadth of like research and also from Olivia your research just how these I often think when I when I in, in activist spaces that I spend time in there is very little room to um, to talk about anything because you're responding to um, urgent like crises which is basically crisis management all the time and so there is very little room and these are groups that are set up out of urgency because of the people are going to be evicted or because of people's like, lives at risk and so we don't have time to sit around to, to watch an archive video or to, or, to, or to read a play and say, like, oh, maybe we should have a, a, a plan about how we welcome new members into our group or maybe we should think about what we do after an action, but all we're doing is thinking it's like firefighting. And I wonder from your research if there was any... There were, <laughs> there were ways that, we, that groups do use art um, early, like in their processes in a way that feels embedded and useful rather than an add-on 
a token, uh, a, a day off from being an activist. Or, do you know what I mean? And I think I often find that there's a lot of resistance to quote-unquote art until a video needs, needs to be made about a campaign or a pamphlet needs to be made or a poster needs to be made and then art's useful all of a sudden. So I wonder just about how, from your research, yeah, like if you've come across groups that have actually been able to embed these kind of processes early enough on. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And um, there are, um, you know, I think it has to do with the, the kind of... Um, the. Um, uh, size of movements <laughs> and how many people there are involved in them because um, you know in in projects like that I've looked at in um, in in Central America around sort of resistance to dictatorships in sort of the 70s and 80s um, and these kind of workbooks that I have around conjunctural analysis there's usually like a subcommittee that's responsible for sort of the culture of the group and that they are responsible for not only um, sort of bringing cultural artifacts to the group but also just thinking about the culture of the group more generally asking questions about its groupness and how it organizes itself and often use artistic strategies within that um, one thing that I've noticed and I know just from my own work is that art is always is far more used on the side of consciousness raising so like if you want to get people in a room around something that you, you know showing a film or something like that might be but it's, it's where it's actually probably most useful is in groups reflecting on themselves and their own actions and the way that they're working and that's where it often doesn't get used but I have a contemporary example which is um, the LA Tenants Union in the US yeah, amazing. they're amazing and they have a kind of subgroup who is responsible for that for thinking about um, sort of not aesthetic production as in making artworks but sort of what are the um, kind of ways in which they can use sort of listening practices viewing practices etc to provoke um, shifts within the organizing practices and were they in place from the from the get-go no I think it kind of evolved as the size of, of the movement grew and I think that's it's a question right if you've got 10 people in a room fighting you know some really important like a deportation it's just you just don't have the the people to do that, whereas when movements grow, you start to have the capacity um, to to do these kinds of reflections on the group itself. But sometimes it is the role of just artists in groups to, to sort of push that, you know, to sort of say, okay, why don't we take a day and step out and we'll use this practice ref to reflect on where we are. You know? mm, but, that's really helpful. Yeah. Just, to, um, yeah, just to sort of add something to it, um, I, one of the reasons I became, as you probably know, we've talked many times about this, um, interested in the suffragette movement in the first place was because the suffragette movement was a movement that used art a great deal. And I first started looking at the suffragette movement more than 10 years ago. Um, yeah, and it was paintings, exactly. So I was doing a project for the Women's Library in London and I found an artwork by Sylvia Pankhurst. And at that point, I had no idea there was any connection to art. Um, so I started looking into it, and I found out that many suffragettes had been to art school. Um, and then I, in a way, you know, kind of the suffragette movement became, you know, sort of through, you know, originally I was researching the role of artists in the movement, you know, and kind of, you know, what, how the suffragette movement used art, you know. Um, and it became a kind of case study, like a way of thinking through what art can do in a social movement. Um, so in the case of the suffragettes, you know, so Sylvia Pankhurst in particular, um, the painting series that I first became interested in was um, a collection of paintings she'd done of women's working conditions, where she'd done a tour of Britain in 19, around 1907, something like that, um, until probably about 1910. 
um, where she documented women's working conditions in factories, in fields, in you know, kind of fish yards, you know, all these different kinds of environments. Um, and then kind of she, as someone who had an art school background, um, you know, that was the toolkit she had, you know, and then she was sort of writing articles for newspapers and these were the images that would be used to accompany, you know, these articles. And then she ended up designing the whole visual identity of the movement, um, you know, which I also see, you know, kind of as artistic. You know, that was something she was capable of doing because of her art school background and that training um, in visual forms. Um, and also when they set up the East London Federation of Suffragettes, um, they were very influenced by the Paris Commune, you know, so 19th century, um, you know, movement which had a huge place for art and culture, you know, and they were very, very interested in thinking about education, art and culture and what those could do in a social movement. Um, so there's an example, um, you know, they were also very influenced by the arts and crafts movement, so William Morris. And one example of that is, um, you know, one of their activities, they set up a cooperative toy factory in East London, um, which became a model for good working conditions, where the women working in the toy factory would receive the same, you know, kind of wages that men would receive, um, which at the time was around a pound a week. Um, you know, and it was also, I argue, you know, a kind of model of art school, in a sense. So the women in the toy factory were being trained um, also to design the toys, um, you know, and then, you know, they, they would, could then receive royalties, you know, on the toys that they'd designed. Um, and it was sort of this very arts and crafts influence idea of, you know, that these toys were art objects. You know, they were trying to break down this kind of distinction between art and craft um, and sort of seeing these objects as like, you know, on one hand, the product of dignified labour, to use this very sort of William Morris-esque um, language, and then also, you know, sort of um, art or craft objects that were then useful in everyday life, you know. And, of course, historically, that's always been a distinction. You know, art is this sort of rarefied thing that goes into the museum. You know, craft is, you know, the version of culture that's useful in everyday life. And they wanted to completely break that, break that distinction down. Maybe there's also something to say about um, where, does, where art sits, because I think the skepticism in some social movements around the use of art comes from the fact that there are really different practices of working with this material, and some of them are, to use an overused term, extractive. Some of them, the sole purpose of them is to put them in the museum or to build a sort of um, sense of um, the art world, uh, lack of conflictual relations with social movements, which, which obviously the art world is also a place where, you know, um, uh, power is consolidated um, um, in a particular way. So it, I think it depends also on where the art's being situated, I mean, sometimes even what it's called. Like, I don't know how often you use that term, Olivia, when you went to work with the groups, or whether you just brought particular strategies to them, you I mean, know, and, and it's a kind of question about um, the use value, where people see a use value or where they see kind of a threat, because a lot of the groups I work with now, if you go to them and say, oh, I want to do an art project, they say no way, you know, we don't want, because we've just had loads of you come, you use up loads of our time, we never see any resources, we see our image in the gallery under your name, 
and um, they you know they feel a bit kind of used and and worn from that and aren't interested so it's like i think it's to do with also where you position yourself and the longevity of your interest in the movement like i I know, you know, and I have a sense, but I also know that the women in those groups knew that you, you know, you're kind of somebody who is a part of a feminist movement who isn't kind of just coming for a short-term project and it's a kind of passing commitment or thematic in your work. It is a, it is an ongoing sort of a multi-year kind of project of bringing people together and bringing different strategies to bear and to, to be in service of movement rather than um, uh, trying to sort of draw it into something else, yeah. Yeah, and just to say, the, the, you know, the two um, groups that I worked with, you know, they, um, I mean, I was always very, very clear, you know, I'm an artist, you know, this is my interest, you know, this is, this is sort of my agenda, you know, is that something you're interested in or you, you feel like you have time for or, you know, could get something out of? Um, but they, they themselves um, have sort of figured out that culture can be quite a useful tool. So, um, you know, for example, within Crossroads Women's Centre, you know, one of the groups I worked with was a refugee women's group. Um, and they'd written their own play, you know, about their situation, which they would perform when they're doing protests. You know, and kind of without any knowledge of theatre or sort of background in theatre, you know, that was something that they had kind of spontaneously done. Um, and then when I sort of turned up with my kind of team, you know, involving a theatre director and actors, they were like, oh, this is really useful, actually, you know, because, you, you, you know, we could maybe get some techniques from some you, skills, you know, yeah. that could make our play sort of more, more useful, you know. And the play sort of, you know, as, as um, uh, I think you mentioned, Jana, you know, it was sort of, you know, it was kind of a tool on one hand, you know, kind of propaganda, you know, getting the message out. But also the very important function, in a way, the main function within the group is sort of, um, you know, recognising yourself in the play, articulating, the group articulating for themselves, you know, the struggle. Um, and, you know, very important for the group dynamic, you know, doing something together, playing together, you know, the enjoyment of acting, you know, that was also all very important. Um, so they'd already kind of come to that point without us. And then we turned up with something that they'd already started using and finding mm -hmm. useful and then likewise, Focus East 15, the housing activist group. Um, so they, uh, there, there's two plays about their struggle. You know, so they'd already kind of been through a process of, um, I forget exactly the process of how those plays came about, but I think one was, I'm, I might be slightly wrong with this, but I think one was initiated by a theatre director and another was self-organised, but I might be a little bit wrong. But they'd already been through that process and had got something out of it. So again, when I turned up, they were like, oh, yeah, this is interesting. This is useful to us. We get something out of this. You know, so um, that, was it. that was sort of, I think, why those groups responded. Because I contacted many, many, many different groups when I was doing the research, you know, trying, to, trying to sort of find groups to work with. And these were the groups who really came back with a strong interest. And I think because they'd already discovered for themselves the role, you know, culture could play in their movements. Okay. I think we've got time for one more quick question, so yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. There's something I can't quite articulate, and it's to do with time that's been kind of... First of all, thank you for an amazing conversation, and it's kind of stimulating lots of thoughts. And, and I'm thinking about time because, um, for many reasons. So, for example, Olivia mentioned in the return of uh, 19th century conditions in society. 
Jana, Jana mentioned um, this kind of sense of rupture or um, when new generations encounter the same kind of methodologies but there's no knowledge, you know, there's like a gap. And I don't, I don't know what to call this because it's not cyclicity, it's not rupture and women losing, you know, uh, rights to abortion nowadays. Mm -hmm. and, and I was thinking, I was coming into the space, last time I was in the space it was for the workshop and I was kind of, I'm, I'm trying to get through a, a little bit of trauma that there is in having lived the pandemic, you know, so trying to join the dots. Again, there's a rupture in between that day and today that I can't, quite, I can't make sense of, you know. And when the first thing that came up when I saw the images on screen, which were really powerful, was Sarah Everard and the violence, the police, which of course was, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's a di the productive disconnect between all these different moments that I don't know what to call. So this is what, if you have any. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, in a way, it's hard to um, respond because that's a really beautiful reflection, you know, and very, I'm very touched because you were one of the participants, you know, so you were there as part of the piece. Um, and I think mentioning Sarah Everard, you know, this piece predated her murder, but I remember when that happened, you know, and then seeing those very strong images of, of the protest, you know, and the women being, you know, who were doing the protest being sort of pushed to the ground by the police and the fact that it had been a police officer who murdered her, you know, um, it was so, you know, it's, it just sort of really kind of, you know, chimed in a very disturbing way, you know, yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, yeah, there are discontinuities and then also, I mean, we, we experience them as moments, don't we? And, and it is, we have had this moment of like kind of disconnected time because of, of the way somehow being able to live one's life in a, a, without being stuck inside makes you feel some sense of continuity. But I think those discontinuities are kind of always there, aren't they? They're structurally produced so that we don't build a sense of rage. You know what I mean? Because if we lived them continuously, we actually felt them, we would be in the streets all of the time. And so there are reasons, you know, there's there's a whole structure, social structure. I mean, neoliberalism and the way it's it's produced our sense of time in packages that we have to kind of sell or that we have that we're kind of ruled by these small tasks that then seem very disconnected from each other. Um, they, they interfere with our sense of continue, continuity in time, both historical time, but also even in, in a single day. I mean, I feel like I can't stay with most tasks for more than five minutes without being flung to something else. And what that produces in me is an exhaustion that makes me not go out into the streets, you know. So I think, you know, it, there's, there are technologies of, of discontinuity that are really important to acknowledge. Um, and to think that actually one of our struggles in our moment is to, to um, try and have a sense of continuous time, actually, to feel like we actually live in our lives um, and, and live in the longer arc of historical struggle. So I, I think it's a really important experience to bring um, COVID maybe heightened it by. I, I feel what you're talking about in a really regular way where things repeat, but they don't seem connected to one another, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I, I would say for me that one of the most compelling things about, I find about your work, Olivia, mm -hmm. is that it really helps us to engage with the material realities 
and material histories of feminist struggle. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about critique, it's about these material realities mm -hmm. of living under, um, as I say, of capitalism. Mm -hmm. okay. So thank you so much, everyone, and then thank you to Jana and Olivia, and I do hope that you'll have an opportunity to go and see the Maureen Paley exhibition as well before I think it finishes on the 30th of October. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you.